Hey pod people, I'm Benjamin Alaco, and you're listening to Last Year's Horror. This episode, we are so excited to bring you an interview with award-winning horror author John Langan. Now, I'm going to be honest, I was a bit nervous to talk to John because, frankly, I consider him one of the best horror writers working today. When we decided to do creator interviews on this show, he was one of the first people I thought of, and there are a few reasons for that. If you've read his work, you'll know that he often writes about my favorite horror subject matter, monsters. But what really sets his work apart is that he's not just interested in whatever or whoever that monster might be. No, in all of his work, whether it's a short story, novella, or a novel, he includes what so many other horror creators allow to fall aside. Humanity. There's a groundedness to all of his work, however otherworldly the subject matter may be, with an emotional center that lulls you, yet pulls you along to whatever horrors lie ahead. If you haven't read his work, you fucked up. But don't worry, because you have plenty of opportunities to fix it. John has two standalone novels out, 2009's House of Windows and the 2016 Bram Stoker award-winning The Fisherman. Both of these books have lodged themselves in my psyche with their fully realized characters and truly epic depictions of horror entities that I'm not about to spoil for you here. Seriously, go read these books. But maybe you lead a busy life and you're all... I don't have time to read novels. Well, guess what? John's fourth short story collection just released last year. It's called Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies, and it is jam-packed full of stories that will have you on the edge of your seat. John is also one of the founders of the Shirley Jackson Award. He teaches at SUNY New Pulse, and he clearly knows his horror history, as you'll hear in our discussion. If you're looking for other horror authors to check out, you might want to have a pen and paper handy. All right, let's get to the interview. Well, John, welcome to Last Year's Horror. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to join the two of you. It is absolutely an honor to get to talk to you. Yeah, I feel shy. I feel like I'm being shy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is an honor. I, I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time. Um, I really, The Fisherman is one of my favorite novels, if not my favorite novel of the last decade or so. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. So I uh, highly recommend to our listeners as well. Yes. Well, thank yes. you. Thank you very much. That that never um, that never gets old. That's always a pleasure <laughs> to hear. Yeah. So uh, you have an excerpt you want to start us off with, John? Yeah, I thought I would read an excerpt from a story that appears in my current collection of stories uh, called Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies. Uh, the story is, itself is called Episode 3 on the Great Plains in the Snow. It's a long story. It appeared first in Ellen Datlow's anthology, Fearful Symmetries. And I'm only going to read the first couple of pages, I, uh, I think, because it just uh, um, it goes on and, uh, and on and on. So... All right, everybody, here we go. The two ghosts' impressions, Lynch corrected himself, that was how Melinda insisted on referring to them, stood considering the wreck. It was some kind of van. Lynch didn't recognize the make, although its snub-nosed front put him in mind of the space shuttle. Time was he'd known cars as well as anyone. The vehicle had been bowled off the road onto the frozen ruts of the field beside it. It had been struck on the left side. You could see where the doors had buckled under the force of the blow. Funny that it hadn't rolled or at least tipped over. Probably had something to do with the height at which the object that had collided with it had done so. Time was, he would have known why that was, too. Understood the underlying principle, if not the exact equations demonstrating it. The roof had been peeled open. Rudely, he thought, the way a child tore the foil off a piece of chocolate. 
Long gouges grooved the van's crumpled side, its hood. The windshield was a frozen explosion. Scattered around the van were shredded pieces of its seats, a white and red cooler apparently intact, half of a heavy blanket of quilt maybe, and assorted articles of clothing, sweatshirt, snow boot, baseball cap. Balanced on the hood, rocking slightly in the wind that whistled like a child trying to find a tune, was a squarish block of plastic. Lynch couldn't identify anything more than its geometry, wasn't sure. It's part of a car seat, Melinda said. She'd noticed him staring. A child's car seat. Ah, that was why he hadn't placed it sooner. His own children were... Anthony was twenty-four, wasn't he? He had been at some point. His memory was particularly bad this moment, the worst it had been in the last three weeks. He tried to concentrate on his family, his children. Anthony, the oldest, twenty-four. Katie was... what was she? Twenty-one? Maureen, eighteen? Seventeen? Regardless, his children were all long past the age of car seats. Though hadn't there been a grandson? Anthony's? Jordan, perhaps? He had a sudden vision of a little boy wearing a red sweatshirt and hugging a toy dinosaur. Shall we take a closer look? What for? he said. I don't know. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Wasn't it? In TV shows, he said. In TV shows about the police. He turned to her. Were you a member of the police? No. Then we might as well stay here until the real police arrive. Maybe we'll learn something then. You just want to stand here? The wind isn't bothering me. The wind... I'm going to check this out. Wait! But she was striding away from him towards the... what had been the van. It isn't as if I'll disturb anything, she called over her shoulder. Not because he shared her desire to view the carnage up close, but because he didn't care to stand over here, across the road, by himself, with nothing but miles of empty field around him, Lynch hurried after her. It was strange to find himself squeamish, now past the point of all hurt, but he was sick with dread at the prospect of seeing what might be left of the car seat's former occupant. He had been fond of violent movies, horror movies, war movies, had been watching one when Anthony was born, he remembered, something with Vincent Price, lurid technicolor. But this, there was blood everywhere, splashes on the hood and roof, streams down the windshield and sides, puddles cupped by the frozen earth. It was as if someone had sprayed the scene with a fire hose of the stuff. He had been the one to tend the kids when they injured themselves or were vomiting sick. He had a flash of a nail embedded in the spongy sole of a flip-flop, weeping blood. But who knew? Who knew the human body had so much blood in it? Not to mention the things he tried to confine to the corners of his vision as he came up behind Melinda. A rope of what might have passed for sausage, a carmine slab of something, a scattering of pale chunks. Could he pass out? He wasn't sure, but this seemed like the test. He looked at Melinda, who had stopped beside the driver's door, and was leaning forward, attempting to peer around the splotch of blood in the middle of the window. Voice thick, he said. See anything? Only what you do. How many do you think there were? I don't know. What does a van like this hold? Four? Five? Six? There have been five people in his family. You can squeeze eight people into one of these things, she said. Two in the front, three in the middle, three in the rear. She glanced at him, at his expression, and added, But I don't think there were eight people in here. Four, five tops. It's enough. Yeah. And I'll stop there.
I love that story. <laughs> yeah, no, like you can just keep reading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's and the story time, children. Sit yes. down. Absolutely. Yes. It's like Coco. <laughs> it's like we're listening to an audio book. I know. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I just want to tell our listeners too. Uh, definitely pick up the book, and you want to you want to read that story to figure out what collided with that van. Yes. That's all I'm gonna say. No spoilers. Yeah. All right. So. This, of course, is probably one of the most frequent, if not frequent, questions you get. But how did you get started in the horror genre, both as you know a consumer and as a creator? Sure. So, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? It is a very long and boring story. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in some ways, it goes, it, it, as, as with so many of these things, right, it, it goes back to a childhood memory that doesn't... Um, doesn't ex well, it makes sense, but part of it doesn't make sense. Okay, so my dad did love horror movies. The character of Lynch in this story is 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 vaguely uh, indebted to my dad. I wouldn't exactly say it's modeled on him so much as just the, they have things in common. And my father was um, was was always fond of watching horror. He liked a lot of different kinds of movies, though. I wouldn't say he was a horror movie buff exactly. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so in any event, this one night he was watching, uh, and I was very small. Um, I uh, I I can't even like third grade, maybe something like that, maybe fourth grade. Um, and uh, he was watching this uh, at, at night. He was watching some kind of adaptation of Frankenstein, and mm -hmm. I asked him if I could join him, and he said, "Yeah, sure." Uh, so my mom, who did not like horror movies, was out in the kitchen with my uh, with my younger brother and my and my um, my middle sister. My very youngest sister was not even born at this point, uh, which is not you know how I know it was a long time ago. And in my memory, they were they were gluing together popsicle sticks to make little figures, which mm -hmm. which seems like a little too much, a little too literary, you know, yeah. like, like yeah, oh sure. Frankenstein, you know, right, right. But but that's that's how I remember it, and. So anyway, my dad's watching this uh, uh, this adaptation of Frankenstein, and, and here's the thing: I remember certain things about it, like there was a, a, a sort of a red tint over the over the screen, um, and I don't know if that was because we had an old TV, although I don't think our TV was that old, or if it was a bad print of whatever the film was, which mm -hmm. seems more likely, mm -hmm. and. My memory is very, very incomplete. Just that the, the Frankenstein's monster I found utterly terrifying. Mm -hmm. And he was tall and he was pale and he was more or less in the classic kind of Karloff kind of shape, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah. he was wearing in my in my memory um, a, a vest that was sort of like a hair or, or an animal pelt vest and what looked like jeans and tennis shoes. And um, <laughs> and it almost it almost looked like the the set of a play. Uh -huh. Um and he was like chained to some kind of rock and then there, but, but it was a sort of a bare stage with like some kind of backdrop, you know, some kind of, of background scenery. And there was another guy who was probably Dr. Frankenstein. Well, I kept going in and out of the room, you know, I, I was sort mm -hmm. of, I was sort of fat because, and, and in my memory, my dad is watching this movie in the dark. My mom's out there with my siblings making the popsicle men and the light in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And um, I keep going back and forth out of this because I'm, I'm terrified of it. And yet I can't stop, you know, I, I can't stop mm -hmm. wanting to see what's going on. So in, in a sense, I think that's like this. That's one of those sort of formative moments, you know, sort of formative exposure. And and, and I would um, and Frankenstein still remains the monster, the classic monster that I think frightens me the most. Hmm. Um, even even today, on some level, there are moments 
there uh, there was a moment many years ago uh, i remember watching the i think it was the bride of frankenstein maybe no or it might have been the original frankenstein james wales frankenstein but i remember there was a moment anyway some shot long shot where you're looking at the monster um down a hallway or something like that mm -hmm. and i and i felt that old prickle of unease and i thought oh mm -hmm. man you know it's still it's still there so uh, anyway fast forward th throughout my um my grade school years, I very much wanted to be a comic book artist. I loved mm. to draw. Oh, wow. um, I read, this was in the 70s. This was the golden age of Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, so I was reading uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein and Chris Claremont, things like Spider-Man. There were five Spider-Man titles at this point, and I read mm -hmm. every one of them. And uh, the Fantastic Four and... Um, the Mighty Thor, and and also the the Conan the Barbarian comic book, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, which actually led me to read those stories, uh, some of those stories. Um, there was at, at this point, um, I think it was Ace Paperbacks had hired. Um, uh, Lynn Carter and Elspreg Sprague de Camp to take all of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories and kind of like arrange them in chronological order and then to write stories that kind of like filled in the gaps among them. So at the end, you had this 12 book like saga, you know, of the mm -hmm. life of Conan. And, uh, and I, man, that was how I got through fifth grade math class uh, <laughs> for, uh, uh, for which I continue. Every time I tell this anecdote, I have to continue to apologize to Sister Ann Daniel for doing this. But, you know, I, I had the book, the math book up and, you know, and she's talking about whatever she was talking about. And I was like, oh, my God, is Conan going to survive his encounter with Thak, the man-ape, you know? But I can remember. It's funny. It's, it's, it says something about the power of prose, right? That I can remember that particular story story it's called rogues in the house where conan is fighting this kind of like like yeti or sasquatch kind of creature and it's got him in his grip and he's stabbing it with his knife and and um yeah i can remember just just being absolutely like en enthralled by it you know and and mm -hmm. and feeling like it was quite the high wire act you know because i'm trying to keep an eye on on what's on the board so if i get <laughs> asked any question you know but um so yeah that was i mean as as a kid of as a child of the late 70s that was when uh Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings adaptation came out. So Tolkien um, and uh, C.S. Lewis, Lloyd Alexander, those guys were all part of, of my childhood reading as well. Um, and I, I don't know if I ever connected quite as well with any of them as, as I did with Howard, uh, for mm -hmm. better or for worse. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But I still, it was mostly comic books. And um, then I got to high school and there was no art program in my high school and uh, they had mechanical drawing and that was it. And, um, and I was like, huh, okay. Um, because my art teacher, my, my grade school art teacher had been wonderfully supportive and, and just, um, you know, they had one art teacher for the entire school and, um, and she was incredibly supportive and I would come in during lunchtime and do work there sometimes or show her my drawings and she would put them up on the bulletin board at the back and she was really supportive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I just sort of assumed, well, I'll, I'll go on, you know, I'll, somehow I'll become a comic book artist slash writer, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I really wanted to draw, but I also wanted to draw the stories I wanted to tell. So, mm -hmm. uh, but no art programs. So that wasn't so good. Um, and at that point, uh, Stephen King's novel, Christine, uh, <laughs> was out and came out in paperback mm -hmm. and I decided I would give it a try. I had read Cujo over the summer and it hadn't really done anything for me. I was like, right. oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but Christine 
Seventeen, which is in some ways a much more comic booky kind of a, kind of a novel. It's mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's it's all sort. Of, it's a crazy possessed supernatural car, right. and there's and there's a fight with the car at the end with a <laughs> uh, what is it they're using? It's like a sanitation truck or something like that. Right. And, and it was you know, um, and it was. I think what was interesting about it, you know, was, was that King's vision of high school was so um, so extreme in a, in a sense, you know, like like his his bad kids were bad and his good kids were good, you <laughs> right. know, and, and like like I, of course, identified with the good kids, you know, um, although more with the nerd who who gets eaten by the car really <laughs> when all is said and done, but like like even at that time, I realized. That that what King was writing was not exactly the experience I was having. Like I realized that although there were kids I really didn't like, they weren't villains in the way right. that that these guys were. But but I think the book really felt very true to me emotionally. And even if even if my brain was like, you know, this isn't really the way it is. Yeah. My my gut was like, but man, this is the way it feels. And and that was it. That one book was my kind of conversion experience, and that just made me say. Okay, here we go. Um, right. And um and so I I just I I went um I went through King and, and uh read his book uh Dance Macabre, mm-hmm. uh, his non-fiction book which is still one of my favorite non-fiction studies of horror fiction. And that really gave me a reading list, it gave me a list of movies right. to watch and and so um I just cont- and I still go back to it every now and again, and I'm like, oh man, I've never read that book, or or you right. know, he's a reading list at the back, and and so he turned me on to Peter Straub, who, um, in in many ways, he was he's he's at least as important an influence as King, maybe maybe a greater influence than King, in in some ways, right. um, and um, people like Ted Klein, his his short collection or his collection of, of short novellas or short novels, I should really say, mm-hmm. uh, Dark Gods, which is finally going to be reprinted, was just it's an astonishing collection and and um, one of the great ones, and and yeah, just uh, there was stuff in it that just bowled me over, and and. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that kind of set me on the path when I when I got into college, I kind of in in some ways I kind of fell away from horror because I was like, oh no, horror isn't really respectable enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of fell prone to to that uh, anxiety. Yep. But at the same time, the things I was reading, um, I read a lot of uh, you know sort of Southern Gothic, where you know Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, yep. that sort of stuff, and and that's that's right in the you know the sort of horror wheelhouse. You know, yeah. there's there's yeah. just, um, and I think I also saw certain um, consonances between. Faulkner's use of um, of landscape of Yachna Potofa County and uh, and King's creation of what would ultimately become Castle County and right. and so that was also the the I think I saw certain connections there so you know all through my um, my twenties I continued to read horror um, in some cases I taught courses and you know like the I was teaching it at uh, uh, the college where I was getting my master's degree. So I would teach courses where the theme was like the fairy tale. And so right. I could do like Angela Carter and I could do uh, Straub's uh, Shadowland and, and such. Um, and I would do other other classes. I would be like, well, we're going to do the Gothic or we're going to do the ghost story or, you mm-hmm. know. And um, but, you know, I, I was not 
I was not writing horror. Mm -hmm. I was, um, the stuff I was writing and, and during that decade of my twenties, I wrote, I wrote a long novel and a short novel and about, I don't know, three or four long stories, probably, probably novellas, maybe novelettes. I'm not sure. And a few mm -hmm. short stories. Um, and, um, but none of them were explicitly horror, although they were all dealing with the kind of emotional content of horror, of, right. of disruption and loss. And, and, um, at the end, at the end of that time, when I was, I don't know, 27, 28, I started to send out these, uh, these short, short stories that I was writing to, um, to different journals and, um, you know, got a bunch of, of actually what I realized in retrospect were really, really encouraging rejections, mm -hmm. but, um, I didn't really take the rejection. Like I was like, they rejected me. <laughs> right. Boo. You know, yeah, although I, I did get, writers do, yeah. Yeah. I, I did get one story back from the Ontario review, the, the, the journal of Joyce Carol Oates ran with her husband mm. and they had obviously put it like on one of those spikes that you put bills on, you know, and it was like, not only had they rejected it, but like they killed it, you know, it was like a, it was like a threat, you know, don't ever say, <laughs> don't, <laughs> you send us another story. It'll be you on this thing. Um, but no, it was, it was finally, um, Finally, when I met my wife, and, and what a horrible thing to say, right? I met my wife and I started writing <laughs> horror stories, you know? Um, but when I when I met my wife, she was doing her PhD work on, uh, she was finishing her dissertation on Jack Kerouac, and she was doing a couple of Kerouac's lesser known books. One of them in particular, uh, Dr. Sachs, is a kind of a crazy mix of autobiography and pulp fiction. And we would talk about these kinds of things. And she said to me, you know, Kerouac thought that, that Basically, American popular culture or, or, or popular culture in general was a sufficient vehicle for literary expression. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, her saying that just kind of like, like, <laughs> you know, all the tumblers fell into place. And right. I was like, ah, OK, I can do this. Like, like someone has has put it to me in a way that reconciles everything. Yeah. And um, so it still it took me a little while to publish. Um, I was uh, I was doing Ph.D. work then at the um the city university of New York graduate center. Uh, I took a course where I had the opportunity to write a story and I, I wrote this really long mummy story. And, um, and it, when I was done, I was like, you know, I think I want to, I want to try to publish this. Mm -hmm. And my, um, my, my impetus was to, to send this to, um, some kind of safe place, you know, like, like some kind of little mimeographed zine where I could be like, right. look, I'm in print. But, um, <laughs> the problem was that none of those, I mean, and the stories like, like 15,000 words and, and no one would take a story. Mm -hmm. None of these little places would take a story of that length. And my yeah. wife was like, no, look in, in her PhD program, she, her, her instructors, her professors had told her, look, when you send out an article, you start at the top. Um, you right. start at, you make a list of your, of your publications, you know, preferred publications from top to bottom. You start at the top and you work your way down. If you get in at the top, hooray, you just got yeah. in at the top. If you didn't, no big whoop, it was the top, you know, yep. nobody gets in at the top, but the chances are that wherever you do finally get in will be higher than where you were originally planning, which was of course the, you know, somewhere down in the dirt, you know? Right. So, um, so yeah, so she encouraged me to send this, the piece off to, uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and um and they took it like a month later i got a check in the mail nice. um oh, that's and, great. Uh, yeah i was i was i mean i i was just utterly flabbergasted flabbergasted mm -hmm. and um <laughs> i can remember one of my we went to a it was that afternoon or the next afternoon we went to a garden party that one of my old professors was having and 
um, I told him about it, and he was like, "You mean you mean they're paying you money <laughs> for your story? Like right. just you know, like like it was not sort of genteel publication." Right. No? Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just and and that kind of you know that started like after that there was no looking back really. It yeah. just it just it just continued from there. Yeah, well, it's interesting that I, I feel like this is the case a lot of the time particularly with horror is that there's always something where it like goes back to childhood, you know, cause that's, you know, that's kind of where you started, you know, with Frankenstein's monster. And it's, I feel like it's that way with a lot of people. I I'm that way. Like, and, and it was, you know, it was kind of a similar route just for myself. Um, you know, I'm still like, I'm, I'm a writer, but you know, I have one book out and like three stories. So whatever, mm -hmm. but like, but you know, I'm still trying to claw my way through, but like, it was the kind of thing where it's funny. I had a similar kind of, uh, circuitous route to, to get to like, okay, it's okay to actually write this stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, I don't know. I, I guess I do know why that happens sometimes, but you kind of mentioned it where it's like, there's kind of a thumbing of the nose at, mm -hmm. at, you know, what you'd call quote unquote genre fiction, but particularly mm -hmm. horror fiction, mm -hmm. you know? Definitely. Yeah, slowly. I, I mean, over the last several decades, uh, man, and I, I mean, probably more than that, I think horror uh, has been, it's becoming, I don't know, it's making its way into the, um, the literary, at least yeah. the margins, at least, yeah. if not, yeah. I, I think that science fiction and fantasy in some ways have had an easier uh, maybe that's not fair to say easier time, but, mm -hmm. but you know, the certain writers. So, uh, Philip K. Dick, for example, like about, yeah, yeah. about yeah. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, suddenly like everybody started to wake up and say, Hey, wait a minute. What Dick was doing is, is very similar to a lot of, basically a lot of our theoretical interests. Right. Um, and those two, Oh, okay, great. We, you know, and, uh, Samuel Delaney's another one and, and Delaney speaks the language of, of, um, post-structuralist criticism. So mm -hmm. that really helped too. And uh, Ursula Le Guin, um, mm -hmm. the same thing. So I, I think, you know, the, those writers start to sort of crack the 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 restraints or, or something, right. you know, the, the um, and, and so uh, horrors, horrors kind of tricky, right? The very name, you know, is, <laughs> is, is disreputable. And yeah. I, I'll be honest, I go, I go back and forth, you know, like, like sometimes, Sometimes I feel like, you know what, it's okay to be out like on the margins, like, because that's yeah. where you can do really interesting things. You right. don't have to worry. Oh my God. Uh, what's the, I don't know. What is the New York times going to think of this? You know? Yeah. Um, but on the other <laughs> yeah. hand, there were times I think, but I, maybe I would like to have to worry what the New York times is going <laughs> right. you know, to, maybe that would be okay. So I think it's probably a negotiation back and back and forth. You're, you're trying to maintain some sense of, of, um, allegiance to your, your art, however you, whatever your view of, of the, the the field and the the field is and, and also the forms that, that you're working in yeah but at the same time you'd, you'd like um you'd like a little respect yeah well it's the kind of stuff where like on the show because we we primarily we like talk about movies you know on on this podcast so like one of the things that you know often comes up is yeah like there's a lot of pulpy horror out there right that's just strictly you just watch it and or you read it and it's it's meant to be pulp and it's entertainment and that's it but then it's almost like 
people who don't engage with the genre don't look beyond that to see even those stories <laughs> there's there's deeper stuff going on most of the time that yeah, you can yeah. you can find if you look for it and i i wonder if it's just because you know, there, there's still, I guess in the U.S., you know, we're we're still kind of that Puritan society or we pretend to be or there's still that hesitation with these types of taboos that, that certain people are just uncomfortable kind of like looking, you know, below the surface of, of the initial, oh, there's like, there's there's gore in this. I'm not going to engage with that, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, there's a whole tangled complex of or maybe a complex tangle anyway of of things um i I mean i think that a lot of times when people um you know the the title of something like the texas chainsaw massacre right Right. is is deliberately confrontational it's it's deliberately so deliberately off-putting and and so because of that some people will take that at face value um critics as as well as as uh average moviegoers mm-hmm. and will just decide you know anything that brands itself with that name doesn't want to be taken seriously it, it just it, it wants <laughs> to be lurid it wants to be yeah which is kind know, of fun <laughs> it's kind of fun to do that though right <laughs> well you know it's 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 um it's like transgressive right it's yeah, like a, it's like I, a I middle the... finger a little bit <laughs> Yeah, the thing is that, like, but here's the thing. I think that there's all kinds of great art that, that you know, obviously, as you know, is transgressive. And I mm-hmm. think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is smack in the middle of that. But I think yeah. that, that a lot of people don't kind of, they probably wouldn't care for that transgressive art either. You know, right. like like the... the, the True. Uh, maybe I'm making vast generalizations here, but I I suspect that, that it, it's not as if the people who... Um, who watch the te- who won't watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would be interested in other kinds of um, uh, transgressive cinema, let's say, as long as there's yeah. no gore in it. And I, you know, what would be an example of that? I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Something like Christopher Nolan's Memento, which mm-hmm. uh, transgressive is not quite the right word, but the way that it plays with time, the way that it, yeah. that it plays with narrative, they might be, they, they might say, oh, I, I don't like that at all. You know, right. <laughs> I don't. Or um, even Last. something like I, I watched uh, I watched No Country for Old Men with my family because yeah, yeah, I yeah. loved that movie when it came out and uh, my my family I was so disappointed with their reaction because I was like you all have to watch this my, but my family's very like straight shooters like they're just whatever just give me the thing no nonsense and finished it and I remember my family just being like my entire family just being like what the hell was that what did right, you make right. us watch what, what, and I was right. like that wasn't the bad, <laughs> the bad guy got away the bad yeah. guy killed the girl. So, uh, yeah, so I think that, that those people might not, I'm not knocking your family, but oh, you can. That's fine. That, they don't listen to the show anyway, so it's fine. Oh, that, that, here, here's when you find out they do. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I so I, I think that that, um, that unwillingness to, to confront things or, or to deal with things, um, to want to deal with things that are in some way, you know, breaking with the idea of, oh, a good story well told. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's, that's definitely part of it on, on the part of some, um, some audience members. I, I kind of think there's something weird too. I, and this is just like, um, this completely inane or, or whatever hypothesis I have. I've just never really tested that, that, like so much of what um what's called realistic fiction um which is really uh 
mimetic naturalism, as as Salman Rushdie has called it. Hmm. Um, and 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 a number of films in in this vein too. They're about these kind of like small moments. It's like poetry, yeah. right? It's it's the the kind of the the epiphany. You know, it's it's in a sense, I guess, going back to Joyce and and Dubliners and such. Right. But. Um, you know, the the thing is that um, sometimes life is like that. Sometimes you do have these moments, you know, I'm I'm walking my dogs and it's it's early in the morning and the sun is coming through the trees and I'm just like, wow, here I am in nature, you know, right. and this is great. And and then there were other times that just utterly crazy, insane things happen. Yeah. And and that is equally part of the human experience. Yeah, and you can ha you can have both, right? Yeah. 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 And, and so I think, um, you know, the the mistake i guess i feel that that um that we've made uh we but anyway that, that some <laughs> critics have made is is in assuming that you know literary fiction is a particular genre of fiction mimetic naturalism as opposed to a, a quality of of fiction um that any type of fiction can have mm -hmm. um and, and right. how you define the literary is slippery i mean i i think about um Calvino saying that the, the literary is that which is is never done saying what it has to say, um, hmm. and uh, Nabokov saying that that you know a great book is a book you're always rereading, mm -hmm. even when you're reading it, you're rereading mm -hmm. it as right. it were, mm -hmm. you know, and and so I, I think about those as as pretty good markers. Um, for, for and probably for film as as well, you know, is, is there were some things, you know, one and done. You know, you watched yeah. it, you're like, do I really need to see Fast and Furious? <laughs> <laughs> no, no harm to the Fast and Furious franchise. I don't want yeah. Vin Diesel showing up here, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah. um, can can you do that? And 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 um, and and I guess you know, I suppose some things. I mean maybe you have to, to specify a little bit more and say that, hey, there are things that we, we rewatch or maybe even reread because they're comfort food, because we yeah. know, you know, like, like it's the, the comfort of the familiar. Yeah. Um, and then there were other things, and, and that's fine as far as it goes. It's the, um, it's the Big Mac equation, you know, or, yeah. or, or you, you know, um, Sometimes you just want a Big Mac because it's familiar to you. Mm -hmm. um, the important thing to realize, I guess, is that the Big Mac is never going to get any better. Um, <laughs> it's never going to get any. Well, hopefully it's not going to get any worse, you know, but but it's just like like the whole idea of like that kind of fast food. Right. Is, is yeah. it's built on this notion of of um, consistency. Right. Yeah. And it's just it's always and, and you can just sort of have it and not have to worry about it. Yeah. You know? Which is like we, you know, in in, uh, you know, literary criticism or or film, we'd say it's formulaic. Right. So we're just following the beats. You know, we've got our beat sheet in front of us and we're just hitting all the points and that's it. Right. So. You know? Yeah, you know, the thing is, I think there's there's what I think is interesting, and, and it's something I guess I've I've looked at in my own or tried to, to look at and work with in my own in my own fiction is that I think that like form like i think everything has a form i guess um i think you can always find the form in something mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. if you study it um yeah and sometimes it's you know sometimes it's hard to see sometimes it's weird whatever but like i think having form to me that's a great um 
that's a great asset, I, I guess. The question, yeah. I guess, is what do you do with the form? You know, do you follow it slavishly and, and you're like, wait a minute, none of this makes any sense. Oh, but it's what the form says, you know? Yeah. Um, or do you do you riff on it? You know, do you improvise? Um, my, uh, my favorite example of this lately, I don't know why, it's probably because my son's heading off to college uh, in the fall. And so I've been thinking about when he was younger and, and the books we used to read together. And I read him this book by China Mieville called On London, which I highly recommend recommend that it. it's it's China's I think it's his only uh, young adult novel hmm. but it is um, a chosen one story it's it's about mm -hmm. this other London and it's under attack from this monstrous entity and there's this the, the chosen one this girl who has to go and and save uh, this other London from it and about a hundred pages into this 600 page book uh, she gets in, um, uh, seriously injured and she cannot complete her duties hmm. And, and all of a sudden, the whole structure gets upended. There's a talking book, which is like a book of prophecy, and the book has this identity crisis because it's like, no, this was not, this was not supposed to happen, you know? And, and, and I think that, so, so just, you know, and China has this insane imagination anyway, but mm -hmm. I, I think that just by that single, wait, what if the, what if the, the hero gets taken out of commission? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, 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 what are we going to do now? Because we still have the, the heroic band. So, so what do we do in, in, uh, uh, in that situation? Yeah. Do you, so do you see like yourself, obviously, you know, that you're writing in traditions. It's very clear, uh, you know, in your, um, story notes, you mm -hmm. know, um, so it, it, it seems to me at least like, you know, very well that you're, you're writing in particular traditions, but I'm curious when you're approaching an idea for a story, is that kind of also guiding you there when you're, when you're kind of thinking about like, okay, what would this story you know, if it was just going to be the formula, what would it do? And then oh, how absolutely. can I yeah, upend yeah. that? No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When I, um, it, it doesn't always, um, I, I would say the more I write, the more willing I am um, to, to, to not think about that, to entertain ideas that don't seem to have a clear formula. When right. I was, when I first started publishing, I was, ecstatic that someone had taken my work and immediately gripped with almost overpowering anxiety thinking oh my god will i be able to do this again mm -hmm. um and i i would read interviews with people um uh, my you know my favorite example is neil gaiman saying oh if i if you know i'll never live long enough to write down all the ideas i have mm -hmm. and i thought well it must be freaking nice neil um, <laughs> because i i did not feel that way i felt very sort of constrained you yeah. know and 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 so i i thought to myself okay look like i kind of thought it out a little bit and i thought okay look let's do this you know, let's look at like classic monsters and tropes. Okay, cool. Um, each monster or trope tends to have a kind of armature around it, a, a form, a certain formal um, characteristics that are associated with it. Mm -hmm. Some of it is is the 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 lore that's associated with the monster. Some of it is the kinds of plot elements that seem to attach to these uh, to these monsters. Yeah. So that can actually be a source of strength for you because you've got stuff to play with. You've got stuff to to work with, and you can think to yourself, well, what if I, you know, what if I messed around with it? What if it's um, so that first mummy story right. was was not about an Egyptian mummy. It was about a bog mummy, one of the Celtic uh, bog mummies. Mm -hmm. um, and what if um, and also because um, 
because I had I at that point I was I was nearing the end of of um, my PhD studies. I mean, I never wrote the never wrote the dissertation. So, but anyway, I had I had read a lot of different approaches to to narrative, and I was like, well, you could also bring some of that in. Like, you can smash different narrative um, forms into these into the the the, the forms of the monster story. Right. So I was I was really interested in in things that would make me feel like I could crank out, crank out at least one <laughs> one story a year. Um, and for the for the first few years, that was what I did one story a year. You know, what can I can I manage that as I've and, and I still do that sometimes I still, um, you know, something like the vampire, there were endless forms that are i feel like associated with the vampire that's right. that's been and and i have not in any way um exhausted them mm -hmm. um it's something yeah that, that that as i said now i'm i'm a little more likely if i get an idea and it doesn't conform to a form as it were i'm more likely to to say oh let's see what we can do with that i i have i have the necessary confidence to do that but yeah. um at first it was you know the important thing for a new writer is that you keep writing yeah. and so you do whatever it is you you play whatever tricks you need to play on yourself in order to keep yourself writing right so i find this really fascinating because i'm a poet and um i i know we're talking about forms in a different way but in when you're starting as a poet like your your entire school is forms like you have to look at like uh sestinas and you have to write and then they teach you you can break these forms mm -hmm. so i find it just i kind of have like two places i want to go and i'm trying to decide which one i want to do first but i guess one of the things i noticed when i was reading your work is i was like highlighting passages and i was like this is like pure poetry like just the language and no, thank you. <laughs> i was like highlighting it and then i was like breaking it in my head i was like oh i could turn this into a poem for him so <laughs> like do you actually look at any poetry when you're writing i know that's a completely different form than what we're talking about but well well no i i um yes i read a lot of poetry um mostly i i guess pr probably the majority of it sort of post 1800 i would say although i I, you know, I read epic poetry um, when I was a kid and, and even um, as a teacher, you know, the Odyssey or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, it was, you know, sort of the romantics on up. Um, everybody reads Shakespeare. I still read Shakespeare. <laughs> um, King Lear in, in particular, I guess. But um, yeah, the, the, the romantics is Coleridge has become more important to me as I've, as I've gotten older in the, um, the middle of the 19th century, uh, Browning has, has just, I, I just adore Browning. Um, and I, I, I don't know, like, I don't think he's a musical poet in the same way that Tennyson is. I, I think Tennyson is a, a, like a wonderful poet to listen to, yes, although yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, but 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 I feel like Browning is just like Browning is like a, I don't know. He he's like a meal man. He's he's like I you was know, gonna like, say like, like a man man. <laughs> yeah, like, like it. And um, and then you know a lot of the a lot of the moderns, um, uh, T. S. Eliot and mm -hmm. um, Robert Penn Warren and uh, Wall I absolutely love Wallace Stevens. Mm -hmm. um, I I just in some ways like like. There's a way the way his poetry makes me feel is like I'm like this is what poetry is supposed to make me feel like you know like like I don't exactly understand what's happening but something is happening um, and um, 
William Butler Yeats, uh, mm -hmm. again, another poet who's become incredibly important to me as I've gotten older, but uh, also Rilke, uh, mm -hmm. one of my, um, whom I've only ever read in translation because I, I really don't have any German. And the, and French poets like Baudelaire and mm -hmm. uh, Rimbaud, um, you know, I, I guess like, like you know, the, the sort of the, the, a lot of the French poets like Baudelaire, you know, is all about poets. So, I mean, that kind of mm -hmm. makes sense, I, I guess. Right. But, right, yeah. But yeah, no, it's definitely um, writing well is important to me. Um, mm -hmm. Trying to trying to write the best prose I can I can write is really important to me personally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's I'm delighted that you know it, <laughs> it, it's, uh, whenever anybody notices I'm like thank you you know because um, because oh, yeah I, <laughs> I do read um, you know a, a lot of the prose writers that I read I I try to. Um, I, I try to read writers who who write elegantly. Um, so mm -hmm. every now and again, I'm like, okay, it's time to sit down with another, uh, you know, say Henry James novel, um, or at least mm -hmm. a story, um, mm -hmm. or um, even Dickens for for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, someone like V.S. Naipaul or or Salman Rushdie, mm -hmm. um, and uh, people who just write really, really lovely English. Uh, um, another guy named Alan Hollinghurst, I, I discovered not that long ago. That that's really important to me to be able to keep in touch with with language and with the, with, you know, it's, it's not just the scary monster. It's the way you're describing the scary monster. Yeah. Right. I would say you can definitely throw yourself in that group as well. Like the, just, yeah, Thank the you. word choice was, it was beautiful. And, you know, you even did some of the, the sound stuff. Like even when you're reading, I was, I was picking up on like beats. I don't know if you were, you knew you were doing that, but it was, it was awesome to me. So <laughs> I have, a, I have a sense that if I have any virtue as a writer, um, and it's the only virtue I can really think of. It's it's that like I'm willing to let things take their time. Yes. Um, yeah. And so that my someone um, someone told me once that my stories I had like a book of maybe it was my second collection of stories and they described it as a book of novels, um, and and it was really <laughs> flattering. That. But but I, I got like I was like yeah you're right you know I I when I when I write and sometimes sometimes I'll be like oh my god when will this story be over you know like like I'll feel it myself right. but I'll be like no 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 there's there's the beat you know there's this there's this kind of um, Sometimes in individual sentences, but more in the way the story progresses, mm -hmm. that it's as if it progresses according to these these large kinds of movements or, or beats in, in that way. And no, no, it doesn't have enough beats. The beat's off here. I have to, you yeah. know. Definitely, yeah. There, there's something to that, too, that... that... <sighs> I get stuck on for myself and, and I mean, that is one of the things that I love about your work. So I think you just nailed like what draws <laughs> me to your work because nothing feels rushed, but there's still a payoff and to, to talk a little bit about like the challenges of, of publishing. I know, you know, you're very upfront about, you know, the, the difficulty of finding a home for some of your work because it, it walks that line between literary and genre, but like, you know, it's it's one of my frustrations personally that you know, it's hard to find that home for things sometimes because, you know, it's like it's like publishers or editors only want the one thing. You know, it's like it, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to find those those people who are interested in, I guess, publishing or representing work that that straddles that line or takes its time. Because, you know, especially, you know, novels, it's like if you're above 
80,000 words, you're in trouble, you know, especially if you're a beginning writer. So um, I don't know if I'm formulating a question out of this, but just, <laughs> just kind well, of a... I think it's, it's what's, what's, you know, what's frustrating um, is that um, you, you look at many of the writers out there, uh, you know, someone like Kelly Link, who does these amazing, mm -hmm. these amazing stories, right? Yeah. And just does this insane stuff. Yeah. Or Jeff, Jeffrey Ford is, is the same. Um, and you think, well, they got into print, but, but how, how yeah. did that happen? And, and yep. I, I honestly, in a lot of cases, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how, how some of these really bold, adventurous writers did it. I mean, in, in, although I have to say, right, in Kelly's case, I mean, she and her husband formed a publishing company to publish her first two collections of stories. Right. I mean, you know, the, there is this great prohibition against, uh, uh against self-publishing, but mm -hmm. Then something like that happens, and you think, "Oh well, you know, maybe there are times it's it's all right, right?" right For yeah. sure. Um, I, I do think that entertainment in general has become much more conservative over the last several decades. Right. Maybe, maybe at least the last two, maybe maybe more. But I mean, like like think about it. Um, if I go back to those comics I was reading when I was mm -hmm. a kid, the number of titles and the number of different titles that DC and Marvel were mm -hmm. putting out mm -hmm. in the 70s yeah. is astonishing. There's all this crazy stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And they would just... Um, they would let books go for two, three, however many years, you know, and, and they'd be like, ah, I guess it's not selling enough. I guess we should cancel it. Um, right. now it's, it's pretty much, um, it's, it's, they, I mean, DC tried to do something like that with the new 52. I think they were trying to be more, more innovative that way, but they didn't give any of those books enough time to catch on. Right. And so what you find is, is you find that, oh, great. Another Batman comic. That's yeah. awesome. Marvel's a little bit better. Um, but man, they definitely follow the trends too. Mm -hmm. So for yeah. a lot, you know, it got to the point where everything was an X-Man comic, you know, they, everybody's a mutant. Are you a mutant? Sure, I'm a mutant. I guess I, I didn't know I was, but you know, how right. can I be a superhero if I weren't a mutant? And, and so, and, and I think you see that happening in publishing. I think you see that happening in movies, you yeah. know, that, that, that movies have become so conservative that, that there's, you can find independent stuff and, and a studio like A24 is, is worth its weight in it's gold. Just Right? Them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think that the big ones, they're only interested in, in sure things. They're yeah, only interested yeah, in things definitely. that, you know, and, and look, I watch every Marvel movie, you know, I have no shame. Um, and I'll, I'll, uh, whatever I'll, I'm, I am going to get to the Snyder cut at some point, you yeah. know, I've even less shame. Um, but so, so it's not that I think that those things are, are bad. It's, it's just, I think that they've squeezed out uh, so many other things, so many yeah. Other smaller films. Um, I mean, in, when a smaller film, you're like, you know, I mean, like a fifty million dollar film, like that's insane, you know, yeah. that, that that's like a small film compared to these <laughs> yeah. these tentpole franchises, right? Um, and yeah, yeah the, so the small press, I will say, or the independent press, as they prefer to be called, mm -hmm. you know, much like A24, I mean, presses like Word Horde um, and Hippocampus um, mm -hmm. and uh, and Small Beer um, have done a lot, uh, yeah. Tachyon, to, to kind of, to, to carve out a space, I guess, for the, for the midlist writers, you know, yeah. the, and the new writers. Well, I was going to ask you, like, you know, with that in mind, kind of your own you know, advice to other creators out there, you know, I mean, some people really are, I guess, 
there's some people who are okay, I guess, kind of trying to chase the marketplace, but like, what's your, what's your advice to, to those types of creators? I mean, obviously it's personal preference, but do you think, I don't know, I know this isn't totally fair to ask, but like, should people sacrifice kind of their quote unquote vision, um, to help make something that they're doing more marketable or, or do you think kind of stick to your guns, you know, because eventually something might happen? I think you have to know what you want. Yeah. And mm. so I I think if if what you want is integrity, you know, if, if what you want is to make art, um, then I think that's what you do. Right. And I think as long as you are clear that that's important enough, that's what you really want. That's what's really important to you. And so if... Um, Maybe that means you're never going to get a big publishing deal because what you're going to do is just never going to fit. Um, right. But maybe you'll find, you know, the chances are you'll find if, if what you have done is well written and such, the chances are that you'll find, you know, a publisher somewhere who will put it out. And if as long as you're okay with that, then, then that's fine. Um, if you're somebody who is trying to be more commercially minded, then I guess, yeah, you, you're going to try to find something that... Uh, um, you might temper your vision, I, I guess. But mm -hmm. even there, I, I feel like trying to predict the market, all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's just, um, it seems like a mug's game to me. I, yeah. I feel like you're always better to do what it is you want to do. Yeah. And I, I think um, it's possible, you know, that if, if you write something that's, I don't know, in, in some way, like, it seems like it might be commercial, you know, but there's some problems or whatever. Uh, it's it's not outside the realm of possibility that an editor will say, hey, I like this, but do you think you could change this or that? And then you right. can decide for yourself. Um, you know, in a sense, I think it all comes down to money. And unfortunately, yeah, I think that, that, that um, you know, we have examples uh, of, of writers who make it really, really big. Right. Stephen King, uh, the late Tom Clancy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is Danielle Steele still alive? I think yes. she is. Um, I was a and, librarian. Uh, sorry. Yes, I know. Oh, she's no, no, still, no, that's, that's I know some, she's still alive. She has like three books a year that come out. She made yeah. she made my you know, she provided a lot of pleasurable reading hours for my mom. So here's yeah. to you, Danielle Steele. <laughs> But I think that, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are these these writers who make it just, you know, gigantically big. And of course, every aspiring writer looks at them and thinks, well, why can't it be me? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and, and in, a, in a sense, that's a fair question. And, and you know, who knows? I, I mean, right. life is weird. Maybe it could be you. But I think that if, if that's what you're going for, look, go into IT instead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's like like that's more of a that's I, I feel like that's more of a sure bet to make you a decent salary and, right. and give you a, a, a decent life. The the writing thing, you, you have to be doing it because you have to do it. I yeah. never really understood that as what uh, as much when I was a kid. But but I think you have to you have to do it because you just you know stubbornly for the kind of fierce joy of it and and if that's i feel like if that's not why you're doing it 
then um man there were so that yeah there were just there were easier ways to 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 make money um, yeah. if that's what you're thinking about yeah well, well thanks for the pep talk i'm gonna go um <laughs> yeah see you later yeah well, yeah and i mean you're, you a, know, you're a poet come on yeah. I mean, like, like, you're, so... you're just speaking my language I'm, I'm adding what you've said to a bunch of bukowski quotes that i live my life by so thank you yeah. <laughs> no yeah, just just the ones where he talks about luck like publishing is all just luck well it's somebody said to me once um and i can't remember um i i I feel like it might have been the late Ian Banks or maybe Ken McLeod. Anyway, he said to me that that what you need in in there were three things that that you kind of need in publishing, and one is talent, uh, the other is persistence, and the other is luck. Yeah. And you can do without either persistence or luck. Like like if you, if you get persistence, yeah. you may not need luck, and if you get luck, you may not need persistence. But you know you can't do without the talent. True. Yeah. So I I think it's just. Um, you, you have to, and you know, in so much of this stuff, I feel like the the thing to keep in mind is patience too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my first story was published in two thousand and one. It was written in two thousand. It took a year for it to appear, and actually, it was probably written in ninety nine. Now that I think about it, um, but anyway, it 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 has taken me you know, that length of time, let's say twenty one years, to be charitable, to get to the point that I'm talking to you guys. That, yeah. that, that you would actually be like, hey, come on, our, you know, we want to talk to you, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that's something else that you have to realize is is that it takes these things just they take a long time, and it's it's some of it is just the nature of the business. You know, mm -hmm. it takes people time to read things. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it, I have a huge, an embarrassingly huge, like unread stack you know and, and, and there, yes. there could be all kinds of and if it doesn't tip on me and kill me right which is how i figure i'm, I'm gonna go you know i'm gonna be like poetic justice as it falls um but um but any number of those books could be like utterly brilliant i mean that was why i bought them in most cases right. which i thought hey this looks good so any number of these could be things that i'm gonna read and i'm gonna be like oh my god why did i wait so long to read this so it's kind of like uh, you have to assume that when you write stuff, when you publish a book or, or stories or whatever, the same thing could happen. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. just going to take people a while to get to you. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm going to I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we're we're actually at about an hour, but there's a couple other things I wanted to to get to sure, if that's no okay. Problem. I don't yeah, I don't want to keep totally you too fine. long. But uh I wanted to ask kind of a, a another I guess personal philosophical question to you. Um so obviously, you know, I think not all your stories, but I think a lot of your work kind of falls within the quote-unquote, you know, cosmic horror subgenre in, in some ways and a lot of the the stories in this genre tend to be, you know, they, they have a depiction of the universe as this really hostile place, you know, where if not outright hostile, then indifferent. And uh, I was just curious, you know, your your thoughts, you know, is uh, do, like, do you feel like, you know, is that an accurate depiction of, of the universe from John Langan's perspective? Is, is the universe a cold, dark place? <laughs> you know, I, I think that... Um... I think it depends to a certain extent on um on questions of scale. Yeah. And and so um I think that in my in my daily life and my daily experience um you know my wife and I I think have a good marriage. I love my kids, you know, I I get along with most of my coworkers. I have <laughs> um, I have really good um writing colleagues. 
And so, like, like in that regard, for me to be like, the universe is a cold and uncaring place. <laughs> yeah. It just sounds like you're trying a little too hard, yeah, you know? Yeah. It, it, um, it, it's a little it like high school goth. Like. Well, a, a little bit, you know? Like, what does it even matter, you know? We're all right. going to be dead in a hundred years, you know? And it's like, well, I know, I know, you know? And, yeah, and, yeah. Um, I, I think, though, um, there certainly are those moments, right? Mm-hmm. when the bottom falls out and yeah. and and from and now uh, you know the 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 thing is like so a few years ago i'm trying to think how many maybe four or five years ago i discovered that i was diabetic type 2 diabetic you could say well there's that falling out you know but on yeah. the other hand my eating and exercise habits for god knows like two decades before that kind of made it inevitable you know mm-hmm. like like so so, oh, this is so cruel. This is so unfair that I did this to myself. You know, like, like, um, and I, I, so I think that some things, some of the bad things that happen to us, you know, you're like, why, why, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're like, pass me that Snickers bar. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. You know? So, so that there's a part of me that, that does think that, that some of the bad things that happen to us are in our control. We just don't think about it, you know, because we're not very good at, at, at it's a problem, right, that we're running into with trying to figure out how to how to deal with and, and stem the tide of climate change, right? Is mm-hmm. that we have such a hard time with like long range planning like yeah. that. It's it's there's some suggestions that genetically we may not be predisposed to that, you know, because yeah. while you're busy making your long term plans, the lion is coming towards you, right? Right. So um I, I think I, I think that there are things, uh, for all that, there are accidents, you know, there are things that have earthquakes, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think what it is, you know, is, is when we say, oh, you know, it's a cold, uncaring universe. Like we, that implies that the universe should care about us. You know, it should mm-hmm. be like, like, and there's a part of me that's like, well, which is worse, you know, which is like, like knowing that there's a San Andreas fault and, and that it, <laughs> it goes off every now and again, or like Zeus. You know, right, like, yeah. like, like, yeah. you know, read the, read right. the, uh, read yeah. Greek mythology and the, you do not want the Greek gods to be interested in you. You <laughs> no, really no. don't, you know, that they're, they're as likely to do something horrible to you. Right. Um, I, I think when you start to, you know, when you, when you start to move to, to larger questions of scale, I, I kind of, in some ways I, I, I'm like, I don't know, you know, like, like yeah. the earth, the earth, um, is it just the right distance from the sun and the right orbit and all this kind of stuff? And it has a moon to create tides and all this, all of that allows life to happen here. Um, maybe it is a cosmic accident. If, if, if so, it's an accident that worked out in our favor. Mm -hmm. So if some accidents worked out in our favor, um, some, some may not, um, you know, the asteroids that hit the earth didn't do so well for the dinosaurs. Um, but I, I think, um, when, when you get, you know, further and further out there, there is a part of me. Yeah. That, that thinks of these things you know, to go back to the romantic poets as, as, as the sublime in a sense, you know, that mm-hmm. when I think about like outer space and that sort of stuff, and I take my dogs out at night and I look up and if it's a clear night and I look out at all the stars and that, and I, I just, um, man, that, that, that doesn't, it doesn't fill me with terror so much as like, like this kind of awe, just like, like it, at, uh, like I imagine what it would be like to have some kind of little warp ship where you could just go see all these things, you know, <laughs> yeah. see all these, all these crazy vistas. And, and that just, it, it, none of them care about humanity, I guess, but, but I, I don't know. 
we like, can still care about them i guess or, or yeah something. it's in uh, yeah to your point i think scale is such a, a great way to think about that you know that <laughs> it's it's a massive universe and there's something obviously that's just literally awesome about the fact that we exist at all right that that if you're gonna if you're gonna look at one part of the picture and say like there's some really awful stuff you have to look at the other part of the picture and go like yeah but there's also some really incredible stuff yeah and and i don't know you know for me i i mean do they do they cancel out in the wash i mean i mean i don't know you know i mean i i'm right. i guess what it is 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 ultimately i'm more interested um in what lives within us, I, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, so, so that, yes, you may have the encounter with uh, the awful, terrible thing, whatever it is, but, but how do you respond to that? And then maybe how do you live with that after, after, um, you've had that encounter right. that, that to me is, is much more interesting. I'm so happy that we, we had this and you said what you said, because what fascinated me was how you do a lot of like going further deeper and deeper within mm -hmm. so we have like a house and then inside the house there's a cave and then we go further into a cave or there's stories within stories within stories so is that kind of more how you look at things within I, I do think there's just endless stories. I mean, I mean, yeah. it's impossible. You know, sometimes my wife will be like, "All right, just tell me what happened." You know, because I'm like, I'm like, but wait, you need to understand this context before yeah. I can tell you about this. You know, minuscule interaction I had at work today. But I need to tell you. You know, um, in 1822, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm always. I, I think that was something. Both my parents were um, uh, great storytellers. And probably, probably my dad was, was a little bit more of, of that style of, of sort of nested narratives and of trying to, hmm. to flesh things out and, and such. And, and that's, yeah, that is very much something that, um, so some years ago, um, I think it was like Simon Strands has put up a picture of a, a person holding up a frame and inside the frame, there was another frame and there was another frame inside that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, Langan, here's an image for your stories. Um, <laughs> and everybody laughed at me, but it was true. So I, I had to just say, OK, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, because like you say that and I, I would immediately think that here's someone who's definitely just going to stick to writing novels, you know, because it's it's that big world, that interconnected web that just makes me think novel writer, <laughs> novelist. Sure, right? sure. Um, but not necessarily. Right. So um, like. So I was just curious, you know, you have four short story collections, uh, two novels, you could say three if you count Safira. Um, but I was I was wondering, like, are you are you generally drawn to a shorter form, like the actual short story form or or do you kind of just let the let the story figure out how long it is and then kind of, you know, decide if this is a, a short story or a novella or a novel? I would say that that at this point, I'm more likely to think a bit about length, um, to think, mm -hmm. ah, okay, you know, um, I would like to keep this thing, like, like I have it in mind. I have this like little, almost an anecdote story in mind. And so this is going to be, you know, under 20,000 words. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and then there were other times when I'm like, well, let's just see where this thing goes. I, I think there were, there were a few stories that I have 
in fact, even even the two novels, I guess, I guess the fisherman. When I abandoned, when I put the fisherman aside to write, ironically, what would become House of Windows, my my actual first novel. Like mm -hmm. I understood that the fisherman was growing towards a novel, and I was intimidated by that, so right. I put it aside for a while. House of Windows, then same thing happened, but I didn't I didn't see that happening. And mm -hmm. Safira, I didn't see that becoming. Like I thought that would be a, a kind of. Um, a novella at most, but I mean, it is actually, it's about 50,000 words. Uh, so it is an actual short novel. Right. Part of, part of the explanation for this is that, that I get invitations to contribute to anthologies. And, yeah. and so, and you know, when I started off writing, when I, when I had gotten, you know, my first one or two stories published you know, I would see all these anthologies and I'd be like, why aren't they inviting me? <laughs> and, um, yeah. um, I know that feeling. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's a very, every new writer feels that way. Yeah. Every new writer is like, why am I not in this anthology yeah. or, or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I want to be in the club. Yeah. And, and, and what I, what I said to myself was I, I really want to get to the point where I'm going to be invited to like everything, you know? Right. And, um, I'm not quite at that point, but I get invited to a lot of things mm -hmm. and I try as much as I can to, to, um, to, to participate in them. I, I, I try as much as I can, you know, um, once in a while I'm like, absolutely. Yes. And then, and you know, um, other times I'm just like, well, let me see what I can, what I can come up with. The, the yeah. bigger problem is time. I, I think at this point with just, you know, I have a day job and, and mm -hmm. such and, and, Stupid um, jobs. I know, <laughs> but it, um, that's part of the reason I guess that I, that I've been writing a lot of stories that I'm, I'm still at that point where mm -hmm. like, I don't want to say no to anybody because I feel like it took me so long to get to this point that right. I, I want to continue. Having said that, I also recognize that most people read books. Mm -hmm. um, they either read, um, you know, I've probably more people have read my stories like in the collections than they have in the individual volumes they appeared in. I, right. I could be wrong about that, but I imagine there's some John Langan completist out there who's like, no, no, I, I have them all. You know? Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, but um, so, um, but also I recognize that, that far more people have read the fishermen say than have read anything else that I've, that I've written that novels are very much the the preeminent form of our time i i think right. um and so um writing another novel is really in my best interest from the standpoint of, of reaching more readers um, right so i i continue to write stories even as i i continually say oh, I'm, I'm getting to that next novel it's it's coming <laughs> it's coming as the poet i just pout in the corner <laughs> no, but you know i mean um, i'm just joking uh, uh, rilke's uh, rilke's only novel the the notebook yeah. Yeah, of uh, yeah. Malta Lawrence very is, is a great weird book so yeah you know yeah. sometimes poets do do um do write novels it's so, true so carrie when are you gonna write your novel you know i know you've had some ideas over the oh no never mind we'll don't we'll say that because something. you know because what's gonna happen then is she's gonna write her novel and it's gonna be like oprah's gonna love it all oh, this yeah. sort of stuff and then you're gonna be like no oh, i wasted on my own petard yep absolutely <laughs> that happens i'm gonna dedicate it to you john it'll be okay all right, all right. It's, 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 uh... oh man i'm gonna go and, pop in the corner now right and Oprah will be like, "Do you, oh, you're married? What does your husband do?" And he'll be like, "No." Oh, oh that's man. too funny. 
All right. Well, I, I guess if we're talking about broader picture, like Oprah and, you know, <laughs> uh, big culture. So do you watch a lot of horror movies? And if so, do you have a favorite horror movie? Um, I don't watch as many as I would like. Um, I recently, and by recently, I mean like like since the summer, I, I uh, subscribed to Shutter, the, uh, the streaming service, yeah. mm -hmm. and they are fantastic. They yeah. are they are worth their weight in gold. Um, they're, I don't know what it is, six or seven bucks a month, I think, and they just. They're such a great resource of, yeah, you can find The Exorcist there if you'd like to watch that. At least I think you can. Um, but, you know, by which I mean just sort of established horror classics. And mm -hmm. then you can just find all kinds of of um, smaller things. Mm -hmm. And I really feel what I love about horror cinema is um, as the, at its best... It's it's all just so different, you know that that you can you can watch, yeah. you you can watch half a dozen horror movies and 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 you watch half a dozen very different movies. Yes. and yeah, each one may have scares in it or 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 whatever, but you'll find. Um, Oh, you know that I don't know if you've seen Host, which was the Zoom yep. uh, horror movie. I I mean, yep. so who who would have thought you could have done something like that? And yet mm -hmm. they did. There was a um, a terrific movie called Scare Me. Oh, I haven't watched that one yet, but it's on. It's been on my list for a while. Yeah, and 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 what's so you know. I guess without wanting to give too much away, I'd say what impressed me so much about it was that, you know, it's a story of two people in a cabin telling each other horror stories, ghost mm -hmm. stories, horror stories. Now, usually in that kind of situation, you cut away to dramatizations of, of the stories. Mm -hmm. um, but here they don't do that. It's just the actors acting. Oh, and, and 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 so yeah. it's on on the one hand you know you're thinking triumph of low budget filmmaking but <laughs> but you're also thinking yeah but man but they make it work you mm -hmm. know and, yeah. and and then there's an old uh, New Zealand horror movie called Deathgasm um, <gasps> I love that movie oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so or Deathgasm I guess you should say something like that you know it, it um, which you know a, you know a, a charming over the top you know I mean when you're Fighting off a bunch of satanic zombies with sex toys. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't oh get any better God. than that. Yeah, yeah. it just so so. There's just there's such a range. I feel like recently I saw blo the Block Island Sound, which um, again I, I also sort of a character study. Um, so yeah, I I uh, in terms of like all time favorites, I'm not sure. I mean, I love Carnival of Souls. Yes. Um, and. Um, I really, yeah, I, I just think that it's uh, I, I, another triumph of low-budget filmmaking. I yes. mean, it's, it's a wonderful film. Um, yeah, I'm also a big fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, yeah. I, I had avoided it for years, and when I finally watched it, I was just, I was just blown away because I could, kind of felt like I could see what they were, what they were doing, and I was just like, this is amazing. This right. is just, you know, and um, the Fly, Cronenberg's uh, remake of the Fly, yes. I, I think is Ugh. is just again, it's uh, like Texas Chainsaw. It just it refuses to stop. Yeah. You know, it just it keeps going, and you're just like, oh man, come on, I can't not come on, stop, yeah. you yeah. know, stop, Jeff Goldblum, stop. And of course, we know Jeff Goldblum will never he stop, will right? Not, yeah. You know. Yeah. I feel like you picked a bunch of our favorites. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's yeah. it's um, man, there is just so much good stuff out there, and and um, and I almost feel because it's it's 
you know, well, obviously, because it's lower budget, it doesn't get the same attention that, you know, Avengers Endgame gets or something like right. that. But but it's, uh, um, man, it's it's so, there's so much innovative work. There's so much great innovative work out there that that, um, that I still have to to make uh, make my way through, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and the list just keeps growing is the... <laughs> the frustrating thing because i'm like and shutter is adding new movies all the time and there's so many books that i haven't gotten to and it's just it's a it's a great thing to be behind on so many uh excellent stories you know <laughs> well yeah i think about um who was it stefan mallarme who at the the end of the uh end of the 19th century said alas i have read all the books you know <laughs> that, that there was like a there was like a list of you know like like there was this sense that there are there's a fi there's a, there's the canon and mm -hmm. there's a finite number of great books and and that's it you right. know and and um and even if even if you tried to indulge in a similar notion and say oh I'm only going to read the best of the best you would still never get to the end of that mm -hmm. because yeah, no. our our sense of what what constitutes that I think has has expanded so much. Yeah. Right. Um, so you 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 mentioned um, you know John Langan completists out there, and uh, we're talking about so, completist. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, hope, I was hoping you were going to bring this up. Yeah. So I, I the the one collection of yours, the one book of yours that I don't have is your first one, Mister Gaunt, and. I went to go try to find it again because I was like, maybe it's, you know, I tried to find it before. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't Googling the right thing or whatever. The only place I could find it for sale was, I think on Amazon, it was being sold for like $900. Nice. And that was all nice. I could find. It was the last I saw it was like an 826 or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but then I, I think I was on, oh, I think it was Word Horde. Um, am I right that maybe we're getting a reprint of that? Maybe? Yes. Yes. It Excellent. is. It is going to be, it it's is going to be reprinted this summer. <laughs> I'm trying, um, I'm trying to, to write a new story for it. Um, we'll see if that, if that works out. Yeah. But yeah, it is. It is definitely, if, if nothing else, I mean, ironically, anyone who's going to pay $900 for this book, um, it was very, very poorly copy edited. So oh, no. if nothing else, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to, to getting a chance just to do a, a better, mm -hmm. um, present a better text, a cleaner text to everybody. Yeah. Now that you said that, it's going to like double in price now. Yeah. They're going to be like, we got to get the one with the typos. <laughs> like rare, rare edition with errors. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it just, it, it, you know, when I, um, it was printed, I'm trying to think about this. It was printed and it had an initial print run of a thousand copies and those sold out. And so the publisher went back and did ultimately, I think about another, another thousand, I think there's 2000 copies oh, wow. out there all told. And then after that, I was like, Hey, let's, you know, let's keep going. Yeah. And the guy was like, no, um, he just, he wasn't interested. He was just like, well, you know, it'll be a collector's item now. And I was yeah. like, I don't want it to be a collector's yeah. item. I, I want people right, to be I able guess. to read it. And, <laughs> and I've kind of toyed, you know, at different points over the last several years, I've tried to get it back into into mm -hmm. print and and maybe you know could we just do an, an electronic version or something right. at least but uh but no finally Ross um Ross at Word Horde was like yeah let's let's do this so we're getting a new um a new cover by uh by Matthew Jaffe who did the the cover for uh for Children of the Fang hmm. um awesome. and um 
yeah that that'll be and then my my fifth collection will probably be out i think in the fall um oh awesome it's called uh, corpse mouth and other autobiographies and um, i love that title <laughs> yeah thank you it was it was a fortuitous discovery i was i was in i was in the rare book room at the strand where where i was part of this reading and I was talking with a friend um, about some dental work I had done, and they were going to try to um, to build up one of my uh, one of my gums by putting um, uh, corpse bone in there, you know, sort of pulverized corpse bone. And Whoa. I was like, "Just call me Corpse Mouth." And then we both looked at each other, and I was like, "That's a title." So. Yeah, if not, that it should be a metal band name or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, would, I would hope that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel like that was the scariest thing I've heard in a while. Corpse yeah. mouth. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know they do stuff like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They use all kinds of cadaver bone and, and such for various kinds of, of procedures. Wow. And, I mean, I'm sure that there, there must be some way, right, in which it is denatured so so that your body won't reject it. You know, right. but it still feels as if there's something you know, there's all those old stories with the guy who gets a heart transplant and suddenly mm -hmm. is having visions or something. So <laughs> yeah. it yeah. feels like there must be something, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I know they used to use uh, this random factoid, but I know they used to use uh, ground up Egyptian mummies for uh, for for paint, like a brown paint back in the day. I feel like it was also sold as an aphrodisiac. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. Which is one of the strange. Of course, yeah. <laughs> right, I know it sounds strange, but listen. <laughs> I believe it at this point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, it's starting to get late, so I guess we'll start wrapping up. But yeah, oh, we really appreciated having you on. And you kind of just told us some of your new stuff that's coming out. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to tell our listeners about? Um, I'll have I'll have a story in a collection that's coming out in the fall, I think it is. Man, what is it called? Dark Stars, Black Holes. I, I keep forgetting the title of this hmm. thing. But it's a new anthology of, of original stories that John Taff is editing. Um, and I'll be in there with people, uh, good people like Gemma Files and Ramsey Campbell and, mm -hmm. and um, Josh Mall Mallerman, I think. So um, awesome. keep, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for, uh, for that, too. I'm excited. You have a lot coming up. Yeah, absolutely. More John Lang. Oh, and I, have, I think I, I think I can announce this. If not, they're just going to have to scrub the, the take the podcast down. But, um, <laughs> no. but I'll also I'll have a short story. That there's a new uh, anthology, uh, a Shirley Jackson tribute Ooh. anthology coming out, awesome. um, and uh, from Titan Books. And I'll have a story in there. Uh, as I said, like a fifteen hundred word story. It's it's one of the shortest things I've written. But it's alongside people like. Um, Laird Barron and Paul Tremblay and Stephen mm -hmm. Graham Jones and Elizabeth mm -hmm. Hand and and uh, I think Joyce Carol Oates and mm -hmm. so uh, so yeah keep an eye out for that one too yeah Very exciting. absolutely awesome cool well John it has truly been an honor to have you on the show uh, oh, it's really been, uh, the pleasure is all mine thank you so much for joining us and and um, I yeah now I have to go back and, and reread everything in your catalog and I cannot emphasize enough to our listeners just how good this writing is so if you haven't read John Langan's work make sure you do that, that that's a problem that you have to rectify <laughs> it's, it's an opportunity look at your problems <laughs> as opportunities <laughs> uh, if you like what you heard and you have haven't yet subscribed please be sure to hit the little button so you don't miss an episode yeah and be sure to check out the other awesome podcasts at ordis studios by visiting ordisstudios.com that's o-r-d-i-s studios.com 
And lastly, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for news and announcements. All right. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.